G'day again, everyone. It's great to see you all. Why don't we pray that God would help us to see and understand his word. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You've not left us in darkness, but you have shown us the light, our Lord Jesus, and you've spoken to us by your word. So help us now to set aside the things that might distract us and concentrate on listening to your word, uh, but also give us soft hearts that are ready to respond in faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. There's absolutely no doubt about that. In fact, unbidden, not knowing what I was uh, talking about this morning, Victoria said to me as we were sitting having a coffee, coffee, I wouldn't live anywhere other than Sydney, she said. There's so much to do in Sydney. It's so amazing. Uh, we were looking at a, a thing talking about what international visitors might want to do if they come to Sydney. It was because they were looking at what Taylor Swift had done when she was in Sydney. And it said, uh, in Sydney, the best thing you can do is just for a few dollars, get on a ferry and just ride on the harbour. And they said, people pay hundreds of dollars to go on harbour cruises, but in Sydney, you can just go on a ferry and just go on that harbour and you look at it. And it made me think, I don't go on ferries very often, but uh, when I do, you look and Sydney siders are there just on their phones. People come from all over the world to see this harbour and we sit there and stare at our phone. We live in this incredible, beautiful city and we just take it for granted. Uh, Sydney is one of those cities that people pay thousands of dollars to just come and see. Uh, there's other cities like that, of course, there's cities like Paris and New York and, and London and another one of those cities, for different reasons I think, is Athens. Has anyone here ever been to Athens? Few people, there you go, a few people have been to Athens, I've never been to Athens, that, that doesn't make it stand out, there's a lot of places I've never been, but here's a picture coming up on the screen of the, the skyline of Athens, you know, who would not want to go uh, and see that? With, with Athens, it, it's the history, uh, Athens is the place where philosophy was born, where, where democracy was born, people go and they would say, I want, I want to go and see where Plato spoke and where Socrates spoke and, and those sort of things, and, and you want to see the history uh, the incredible old buildings, the, the ruins and so forth. Well, in our chapter in Acts today, the Apostle Paul has come to Athens. So if you're with us uh, for the baptism today, we've been working through this book of Acts in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul has come to Athens, but he hasn't come as a tourist. Uh, if you remember, he is on his second missionary journey. So uh, I've got Troy's map. Those who were making fun of my maps a few weeks ago, I've, I've ceded responsibility to Troy for helping me with maps. Uh, people were saying they couldn't see anything on my maps. So there you go. So, so uh, Paul has gone. He's gone into what, what we would call Turkey, but then he's crossed into Europe uh, and he's gone to Macedonia, the northern part of, of, of what we would now call Greece. Uh, and uh, although I'll upset people who are from Macedonia in saying that, uh, and he's gone to towns like Philippi and Thessalonica and, and Berea. Uh, and so he, in all of these towns, he's preached the gospel. There's been widespread turning to Jesus. People have become Christians, churches ha have grown up, but something else has happened in every town he's gone into. Opposition has come up. And so some of the towns Paul has only just escaped with his life, uh, and so in Berea, uh, he basically gets run out of town. And so now he ends up in maybe the key city in Greece, Athens. Uh, but as I say, he doesn't get there on a cruise ship. Uh, he gets there basically because he's bundled out of Berea uh, for his own protection. His friends, Silas and Timothy, stay behind to try and uh, settle the church there. But Paul is effectively just dumped in Athens. And so he's basically left on his own in this great city to wait for his friends. 
you understand, this is a pretty tough time for the Apostle Paul. Here he is on his own in a new city where he knows no one. Uh, and so he sits there and he looks out, if we can bring back the skyline, he looks back over that beautiful skyline, except it wasn't ruins then. Uh, these were the, the buildings were in their, their full beauty, their full pomp at that point. Uh, so Paul looks out at this incredible view that we would pay thousands of dollars to see. And what does he see? Look with me at verse 16. Open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, put up your hand. David will, will run one to you. You want to be able to follow along. But look at verse 16. Uh, and what does it say? It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. See, Paul couldn't see uh, the beautiful buildings. He couldn't just look out and admire these beautiful buildings when they were built to worship false gods. Uh, Paul didn't see a beautiful skyline. He didn't see a beautiful, the beautiful ability of human ingenuity to make these incredible things. He saw a city of lost people. He didn't see a different culture to admire even. He saw a city that was giving glory to idols rather than glory to the one true God. He saw a city of people without hope. He saw a city of people wasting their time arguing about, about human philosophy and about false religions, and it grieved him to his heart. Uh, the word there in verse 16 actually has the sense of anger. He's actually angry on God's behalf, I think. He's angry on, on behalf of the God who has revealed himself that, that people are ignoring him and giving his glory to things made of stone and wood, to, to idols. He looked out this great city, which counts itself as the height of human wisdom of that time. He looked out and he saw them through God's eyes. A people lost, a people without hope, a people ignoring the God who made them, unaware that there will be a day when every person is called to account. I wonder, do you look at Sydney the same way? Despite what I said at the start about how over our morning coffee, Victoria and I were, were talking about the beauty of Sydney... Sometimes I sit in a cafe, sometimes I sit on the train into the way into town or, and I just see the people rushing around and I see them caught up in the world, rushing from sort of shop to shop, rushing about their work, their study, their, their sport. I, must admit, I feel for Sydney what Paul felt for Athens. I grieve for this city. I grieve for a city that, that, I, that glorifies idolatry. In every sense, whether it's the idolatry of false religions or the idolatry of greed and the idolatry of lust, our city loves false idols, but then uses the name of Jesus as, as a swear word. Our city delights in immorality and says we're proud of it. Our city calls sin good and good things evil. If you don't sometimes look at our city and on the one hand, praise God for its incredible beauty, the beauty of his creation. But on the other hand, if you don't look at our city and despair sometimes, I, I'm worried for you. Because it suggests perhaps you don't yet know Jesus. If the fact that so many people in our city are lost and wandering around like sheep without a shepherd, if that doesn't make you grieve, there is something wrong. Isn't that true? See, the danger then, though, is that Christians, in our troubled spirit, that we then withdraw from our city. This is the danger, that Christians look out over the city and we, we grieve its idolatry, but we then withdraw from our city. The danger is we turn inwards 
and, and that we bunker down and all we do then is stand in judgment over our city and say look at us in our little church buildings haven't we got it right we know God uh, I think you see that in a lot of sadly American Christianity where people see that their job is to condemn sinners and impose Christian morality on people that's not Paul's response to Athens Paul's troubled spirit even his anger doesn't lead him to judge the people of Athens it leads him to want to share the gospel with them it leads him to want to share the hope that he has found with them he wants them to turn from their idols and come to know the one true God so let's look at what he does I've called this next part Paul offers people the true knowledge of God look with me from verse 17 it says so that is because of what he saw so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul starts with the Jews, as he always did. We've seen that right through Acts. The gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But then he talked just to anyone who would listen. He went to the equivalent of Westfield and he, and he just stood there and he talked to people. Now, at this point, I just want to draw out two important things to see about what Paul did and then I want to look at the two responses people make. So first of all, about Paul, I've got Paul's method. The first thing I want to point out is that word reasoned there. Do you see that? I love how it says he reasoned with people. The word has the sense of argued, discussed. He didn't just come in and download his views. He talked, he argued the case. He answered their objections. I want to encourage you, the gospel stands up to any objection. The gospel stands up to any question don't be fearful uh, of what people might say uh, the gospel is the truth of God and to see people come to know Jesus we need to be willing to answer their objections we need to be willing to reason with people uh, but to do that you need to know the grounds of your faith to reason with others you need to know the grounds of what you believe you need to know why it is true so that's the first thing to see there Paul reasoned but then secondly, I think you see Paul's message was simple and unchangeable. Look down at verse 18. It says, he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So yes, he reasoned with people, but in the end, he had a simple message. His message was the good news about Jesus. That's his message, the news that Jesus is the Son of God, the news that Jesus has died for our sins, the news that Jesus rose and defeated death. And so anyone who believes in him can have eternal life. That is the good news about Jesus. But it says he also told them the news about the resurrection. That's not the resurrection of Jesus, though I'm sure he would have talked about the resurrection of Jesus. He was talking about our resurrection. He was saying to people, I want you to know the good news about Jesus so that you will be ready for the day when Jesus returns and everyone is raised from the dead, some to everlasting judgment, but to those who have found salvation in Christ, to everlasting life. That's the resurrection he's talking about, the day in the future when Christ returns and all people will be called to account. So there's the simple message he shared, the good news about Jesus and about the resurrection. That is what he reasoned with them about. So I want to encourage you to reason with people you do not need a degree in philosophy. We're going to see what they thought of Paul in a second. They thought he was a country bumpkin. You, you need to know Jesus. That's what you need to know. You need to know Jesus and you need to know the truth about him. You need to be able to give the reason for your hope. 
which is that Jesus Christ was crucified and now is risen. We'll look at our people's responses. I want to see how people responded. I think you see two responses in these verses. The first is a lot of people argued with Paul and they mocked him. Look at verse 18. It says, Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, What is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? You can hear the sneer in their voice, can't you? Epicureans, I'm not going to do a first-year philosophy course, but very, very broadly, they didn't care about God or even the gods uh, that the Greeks believed in. They just lived for this world. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, Many modern Sydney-siders are Epicureans. Not that they'd call themselves that and not that you should call them that, but they'd probably think, oh, you mean I go to nice restaurants or whatever that, you know. The Stoics are the opposite. The Stoics are more like fatalists, you know, the gods are in control, you can't change it, human beings can't do anything about anything, just put up with it. So the Stoics would say, life is hard, deal with it. That's Stoicism. And again, it's common today. But even though they were polar opposites in their views, they agreed that Paul was a bit of a joke. Even though they hated each other, they agreed we could mock Paul together. What's this nonsense you're going on about? Our translation there calls him a pseudo-intellectual, which which captures their their mockery. Literally, they call him a seed picker. They're saying, you're like some little bird who's picked up a few clever ideas and now you pretend you know what you're talking about. You're a stupid babbler, Paul. I think it's incredibly helpful to see this. Don't be surprised when people discount the gospel and mock the Christian faith. They did it to Jesus They did it to Paul, so why on earth wouldn't they do it to me and to you? But some other people respond with misunderstandings, yes, but they're still interested. Look at the rest of verse 18. It says, others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. These people weren't mocking Paul, so the others are just sort of writing him off, this this seed picker. They just don't get it, these ones. He, he seems to be talking about a new God. Maybe this new God's name is Jesus. Maybe he wants us to put Jesus alongside Zeus and, and all these other, our other gods. And something about raising people from the dead, it sounds weird, I don't get it. But even though they can't understand it, some of them are interested to know more. Look at verse 19. It says, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these ideas mean. These people are nowhere near becoming Christians yet. They aren't saying to Paul, what must I do to be saved, like we had in the passage Troy preached last week. Uh, They're they're intrigued though. Their their mind is teased. They, they, They want to know more. And again, I think this is so helpful for us to see that reaction, especially as our culture gets less and less Christianized. 20 years ago, Most Australians didn't follow Jesus, but they knew that the Lord they didn't follow was Jesus. They they didn't worship God, but they knew the God they didn't worship was the God of the Bible. And so it was much easier 20 years ago to explain your faith to a person because many already had the gist. They'd been to Sunday school as a kid. They'd been taken on to church. Even at Easter and Christmas, they they showed up and, and heard something about the death and resurrection of Jesus There is a whole generation now in Australia, most people who've never been to church. They never went to Sunday school. They never went to youth group, not to mention people who've come from other cultures with other religions. Uh, And that means 
Don't expect that people will understand the truth about Jesus in one conversation, in one moment. I actually think it's wonderful. I think people now are more open to the gospel because they haven't been hardened to it by bad experiences of the church. I think we're in a wonderful time where people say, Jesus, I know nothing. Tell me about this Jesus. But I want to say to you, it is a long road often to help people move from knowing nothing about Jesus to turning and trusting in him as their Lord and Saviour. It's one of the reasons why we focus so much on the life course here at church that I was talking about before, rather than one-off events like churches used to do 20 years ago. Sometimes people come to me, some, there are people in our church who were converted at Randwick Racecourse in 1959 when Billy Graham preached. And they said to me, why don't we have a rally like that? Why don't we get someone and we'll fill Randwick Racecourse? And, and, and they think that's how you need to share the gospel with people. And, and there's other people who, who loved it when we had one-off events at something or other and they, they pine for those days. One of the reasons at the moment we focus on inviting people to a course is because when people are starting with nothing... It takes time to help them come to understand why they might need Jesus. Sometimes there are people in our church who do the life course and then they do the mortar life course and then they come back two years later and do the life course again and then halfway through the second mortar life course they go, I see you're telling me Jesus died for my sins. And you're thinking, I've told you that 36 times across these, these four. But when people are starting with nothing, you need to bring them to understand Jesus. It can be a long haul helping someone come to know our Lord and you'll only persevere in that if you love the person enough to do that and if you really know how important it is to know that they meet Jesus. So don't forget, not everyone mocks. Many people want to know more. But now let's turn to the final part of our passage. I've called it Paul's most famous sermon. Come with me from verse 21. So some of these people were so interested, they said, let's take Paul to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the place where the great debates happened. So Paul's been in Westfield, Hurstville. Now they say, we want to take you into town. We want to take you to where the real movers and shakers argue stuff. Uh, I love a little, I love how just you catch Luke's sarcasm in verse 21. Just pokes through. I love that verse. Look where he says, now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Is it just me or is there cynicism in his voice? He sounds like me talking about the university philosophy department a little bit, doesn't it? You, you know, I won't get distracted and share my views of modern philosophers, but I think Luke would agree with me from that verse. The point is, though, Paul's been taken from Westfield, Hurstville. Now he is at... Sydney University debating hall. Now he is at Parliament House. Now he is at Town Hall. This is where the real leaders are. Now this is probably Paul's most famous recorded sermon. Be aware though, it's only a summary. Like most of the sermons in the Gospels or in Acts, sometimes people argue, oh, Paul left this out or Paul didn't say that. I think that's a bit silly. Luke's given us a summary. That's the point here. Uh, but even the summary is masterful. I'm going to quickly go through it. The first thing I want you to see is Paul meets them where they are at. Remember, many of these people have never heard of the God of the Bible. They hear the word God and they think of 300 idols sitting around on this mountainside. Their picture of the world is that there are lots of gods who fight all the time and maybe if you make them a sacrifice, something good might happen for you. So Paul's introduction is masterful. Look at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, 
I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. See what he does? He, He meets them where they're at and then he finds a connection to introduce them to the true God. I can see that you're religious. I can see that you're open to the idea of the divine. Uh, uh, But you're hedging your bets. You've even got an altar for an unknown God here. Let me tell you about the God you don't know. As I say, it's so clever. But, and this is so important, yes, he meets them where they're at, but he doesn't stay there very long. Uh, He then makes it so clear that the God he is introducing them to is not one of many, but the one true God. So my next point of his sermon, the main thing he does is point them clearly to the one true God. Come with me through the rest of the talk. It's so much better if you've got the Bible there so you can follow along. Uh, So to point them to God, he starts at the beginning. Firstly, he explains that God is the creator of the universe. So he doesn't jump to saying, Jesus died for your sins. He says, you need to start way back at basics that God created this world. Look at verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. See how clear he is? You might love all these so-called gods you worship, is what he's saying, but there is only one God and you can't trap him in a little statue on a mountainside. God made everything and God rules everything. And because of that, his second point, verse 25, we owe God everything. Look at verse 25. He says, neither is he God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Paul says, the only reason you are here, the only reason you can waste your time arguing about philosophy is because God has given you breath. The only reason you can sit here and do whatever it is you do is God has given you your brain, he has given you breath, he has given you life. God doesn't need you, but wow, you need him. That's the point he's making. God has made you, he's given you everything, So you owe him everything. And this God is not just the God of the Jews. He's not just the God of the Greeks. He's not just one of those shrines or one of those altars. His next point is, God is the God of all people. Look from verse 26. He says, from one man, he, God, has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. The point Paul's making is, there is not a God of the Jews and a God of the Greeks and a God of the Chinese and a a God of the English and a God of whoever else. He says, we are all humanity. We're all descended from one man made by God. And so God is actually in control of every nation. He's in control of all the borders. When people move, it's all part of God's plan. And so if people don't know God... It's not God's fault. God's always wanted you to seek him. God's not far away. The problem is with us. The problem is with what he talks about in other places, our sin. The problem is that we have turned our backs on God. We've rejected God. We don't seek him. We don't reach out and find him. And because of that, and Paul's final point, he says to them, turn back to God because God has set a day of judgment. Look from verse 30. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. His point is God is slow to judge. God has put up with human ignorance for thousands of years. But there is a day coming when he will call all people to account. And God wants people to turn back to him. He wants people to seek him and find the forgiveness he offers. From other parts in Acts, we know Paul would have probably explained how Jesus has won our forgiveness through death on the cross. But his point here is, there's no excuse for ignorance anymore. There's no excuse for going on and continuing to worship these idols made of stone and wood. There is one true God and he has set a day when Jesus will come back in glory to judge the living and the dead. His point is really simple. Turn to God now. I reckon the people who invited him to speak at the Areopagus would have been regretting it, a lot of them at this point, because they would have thought, hey, that's not how it's meant to work. We're meant to have a nice argument and you're telling us we've all got to repent and worship your God. That's that's not how the, the rules work in our debating society. And so what was the response? I've called this last part the power of the gospel to save. Look, come to verse 32. Some of them ridiculed him. Same response again. What's all this nonsense about people rising from the dead? That's just stupidity, Paul. Mockery again. Some people want to know more. We'd like to hear more from you about this, Paul. But wonderfully, after Paul walks away, look at verse 34. It says, however, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. As I've said this before in our studies in Acts. There's a reason they record those names. It's not because you will find Dionysius the Areopagite in, in history books other than the book of Acts. It's because when this was written, you could have sought out Dionysius the Areopagite and you could have sought out Damaris or you sought out their friends and say, is this true? Because this is history. This is the real story of people coming to faith. And I love verses like verse 34 in Acts. I just love the way, while other people are mocking them, other people are questioning him, a few people there, including one of the leaders, went from shaking their head to nodding along. And that day, they found the one true God, and that day, they moved from eternal death to eternal life. That is the power of the gospel. And it is just as powerful to save a prison guard in Philippi, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, as it is to save the intellectual philosopher in Athens. Don't ever forget that. The, the gospel is just as powerful to save the, 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 the person out on the streets as it is the lecturer at the university. The gospel is the power of salvation. Don't ever doubt the power of the gospel. And if you are here today and you don't know that power, you've never come to know Jesus, I want to say to you, come and ask to know more. Talk to Troy, talk to me. This is the most important challenge that has ever been made and has ever been heard. God is waiting. Turn back to God. But for we who already believe, don't ever doubt the power of the gospel. As I close, what should we take away from this great passage? Here's my prayer for us all. Is that we would see the world and we would see Sydney the way Paul sees Athens. That we would see our city through God's eyes like Paul did. It should grieve us that people do not know God. 
It should grieve us that people do not give God the glory he deserves. That's the first thing. But then my second prayer is that that would not drive you to sit in judgment or to to withdraw from the world. My prayer is that like Paul, it might drive us to share the truth about Jesus. My prayer is that every person here would be ready and willing to reason with people. Be ready and willing to explain to people the reason for our hope, to invite them to come to know the hope you have found in Jesus. That is what this city needs more than anything else. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing sermon of Paul's. Uh, We thank you for those who shared the wonderful news of Jesus with us so that we could turn and put our trust in Jesus. And we pray as we look at our city, we would not just be struck by its beauty and the beauty of human ingenuity and all those things. We pray that we would see our city through your eyes and that we would see that people are lost and in need of a saviour. And so we pray that every one of us would be ready to reason with people, to explain the reason for our hope, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.